Hello and welcome to Man on the Platform Omnibus Sport Review. <clears throat> Today I'm going to do a podcast entitled MLB in Crisis. Over the past few weeks, we've had a situation where the Major League Baseball, through the commissioner and the owners and the players and the MLB Players Association, have basically been at loggerheads. They've been at each other's throats regarding this season. So, without going into huge amounts of detail, effectively, spring training was just finishing up and we were about to start the season when COVID became real. In the United States, it forced the shutdown of the NBA, NHL, and then baseball. So, within the first few days... It was, no one really knew what was going to happen next. We just knew that there was, you know, this crisis was coming. And so effectively the um, players union and the owners and Major League Baseball came to an agreement. And it was a bit of a surprise at the time because obviously with the collective bargaining agreement, which is basically the, the framework of how baseball works between the players between the owners, between rules and all the rest, bits and pieces of basically how you get from A to B, that it was going to be contentious. There'd been some issues, there'd been some frustrations on both sides, and it was a bit of a surprise that, that everyone agreed. Uh, what we believed was an agreement was that, you know, the players would get, you know, the, the, the exact amount of money that they were owed on a per-game basis, depending on how many games the season was going to be, and effectively there was some talk that if there was going to be no fans there, that they might have a, a further discussion. And for the first couple of months while everything was in lockdown, it was just the general sense was that you know baseball had sorted the situation out, and that eventually once things started to ease out, there would be a further agreement on how many games, where those games would take place. But that's all fallen apart. There's just complete rancor, the... Players are demanding every single, you know, as much money as they can get. The owners are saying that they're losing huge amounts of money, somewhere in the vicinity of sort of 40% of their ordinary turnover revenue because there's going to be no fans in the crowds, at least until the end of the season, potentially even to start next season. Or if there is going to be fans, not many fans. And as the time it's effectively running out. There's been talk of a, a grievance being filed. There's a potentiality that you just won't get a season. That they'll just the season will just be cancelled, and effectively baseball will be in a blackout for seventeen to eighteen months at the absolute minimum. For me personally, I see owners as a necessary evil. I mean, outside of the Federal League, which was an attempt by the to create a player-ran league where they wouldn't be at the, the mercy of the owners, which was, you know, it was an end around the owners. And it, on paper, it would have been fantastic. This was sort of the early 20th century. But as with anything, anything so radical, it was eventually suppressed. The owners got the upper hand. And really... I think there's two truisms with anything to do with baseball players and ownership is that it's a push-pull relationships relationship and the owners always need some form of primacy 
So when the Players Association hired Marvin, Miller became an actual professional outfit, not just basically a couple of drawers in an agent's office. The players started to you know, get some form of rights, some much better treatment. I mean, really, baseball players were treated atrociously in the 50s and 60s and in the 40s. And as we got to the 70s, you then got to a situation where the players won free agency. So what did the owners do? They hit back by colluding to drive down free agent prices. So they so that was an attempt to drive down salaries, and by doing and they refused to sign others, other teams' free agents. So in other words, if the Red Sox had a free agent, the Yankees wouldn't, you know, make an offer. So that player would eventually have to go back to the Red Sox, and the Red Sox would therefore have the salary advantage of being able to name their price. Okay, so in the late 80s, the players won compensation for that collusion. Huge amount, hundreds of millions of pounds, dollars. So what happened? The owners demanded a salary cap, and that then leads to a you know, union owner standoff, leads to the cancellation of the 94 season and the 1994 World Series, which was had a resultant damage to the entire sport. I mean, you could even argue that one franchise, the Montreal Expos, never recovered. They were one of the best teams in baseball that year. You know, they were likely to go to the playoffs. They had a really good chance of winning the whole thing, which would then would have given them the ability to, I suppose, sort of leverage that into building a new stadium in downtown Montreal. Didn't happen. The you know, they were never able to to fix it. And eventually, you know, the only real way of getting was to move them to Washington and where they became the Nationals. So you can imagine for Montreal fans watching the Washington Nationals win the World Series must have been bittersweet in a lot of different ways. With with the 94 season, what you had was it was so rancorous that you had two-thirds of a season completed. And a lot of casual fans dropped out and they never returned. And I'm going to go through this in a bit more detail later in the podcast. But there was just a general loss of societal knowledge. A whole bunch of people just tuned out. And as a result, baseball hasn't ever quite been able to be as national as it once was. And if you compare it, let's say, with the 1919 Chicago White Sox Black Sox scandal. So basically you had the owner, Charles Comiskey, was legendarily frugal towards his players. And this 1919 White Sox team was considered the best team in baseball, won their league by landslide, and were, were overwhelming favourites going into the 1919 World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. But his frugality had antagonised the players, and enough of those players didn't felt that they were being undervalued to the point where the gamblers got involved and really were able to pay off the players to throw the World Series. In the end, with that crisis, everybody lost. In the sense that the players only got the upfront money from the gamblers. Because effectively the gamblers worked out, you know, as criminals would do, that once you had the players throw a couple of games, that was it. They weren't in a position to go back on it. You could threaten them, you could cajole them, they they had the players in their pocket. And eventually, there have been World Series games before then that were thrown. Or at least there was a 
underlying sense amongst the public and baseball experts that they had been thrown, but there was never any smoking gun. But in this one, it was so blatant. There had been so many errors, so much underperformance. There was an almost an inevitable sense of discovery about it. And it threw baseball into an existential crisis. So the players who threw the World Series lost their livelihood and reputation. They were banned from baseball forever. And I mean forever. You try and get like Buck Weaver's family, I mean he's been dead a lot of years now, have been trying to get his name cleared because while he knew that it was going on, he didn't tell anyone, or the, you know, the manager owner, but he didn't participate, you know, tried his best in the World Series and didn't get a penny out of them. You've then got, you know, obviously, you know, Shoeless Joe Jackson, who was one of baseball's best players, who would be a Hall of Famer. Again, never going to be put into the Hall of Fame, even now. You know, Comiskey lost gate money. He lost the chance of winning a championship. And baseball as a sport was thrown into an existential crisis, which really leads to, you know, Kenneshaw Mountain Landis being put in as the, established as the first ever baseball commissioner. Which really leads us to a situation of, well, how did baseball recover from these moments, these these absolute crises? What you had in the after the the Black Sox scandal was there was a sense that a lot of fans were, were worried that baseball wasn't on the up. How could you trust these players if they were going to throw the games? If they were going to throw the World Series, the most important games in the baseball season, how could you trust? And obviously, once you had Kennesaw Manton Landis, this federal judge, very tough man, you then had a situation where they started to, they wound the ball tighter. They started replacing it more often. The idea was is that baseball in the dead ball era, you started out with one baseball that was brand new and white, and then eventually would be covered in spit, licorice juice, dirt, and by the end of it would be misshapen and soft and wouldn't go as far. You couldn't hit home runs with it. And what you then had was suddenly a ball that was harder, tighter, that went further when you hit it. And so you then suddenly had a, a massive spark in home runs, which then captured the nation's imagination. You had the rise of Babe Ruth. You then had the Yankees as the dominant force in the game. You had the new Yankee Stadium built in 1923, the house that Ruth built. You know, and then a resultant rise in attendance. It became a national sensation. There was something to take people's mind off the Black Sox. You had a new team in a massive city doing brilliantly well with great players. And I suppose, and then you think of what happened to baseball after 95. The 95 season, the first year back, you had Cal Ripken Jr. beats Lou Gehrig's consecutive games record. So that, so that the knowledge of that was going to happen was in people's mind. And it was such a well-known record, you know, Lou Gehrig played the Iron Horse, played, you know, ne right next to Babe Ruth for, you know, the 27 Yankees. You know, the, the Wally Pip story, the famous story, it's kind of apocryphal, but it, it suits, it's got this wonderful quality as a story. The idea that Wally Pip, the first baseman for the New York Yankees, goes out on a night out, drinks too much, wakes up with a hangover, and just says to the manager, look, can I sit this game out? And say, like, okay, yeah, fine, we've got this rookie, Lou Gehrig. He'll come in and play for you. And then, you you know, once you feel a bit better, once you're recovered, you can get your place back. And he never gets his place back. Lou Gehrig is his superstar pretty much straight off the bat. 
and he loses. And so the idea of being Wally pipped has sort of seeped into the American consciousness. It wasn't quite like that. Lou Gehrig was a you know college star. There was a knowledge that he was eventually going to break into the Yankees, but obviously just this one game was just. It's just a lovely story. And and the thing is with Cal Ripken Jr. is that it was a famous baseball family. His dad was the manager of the Orioles. His brother, you know, Billy, played for the Orioles. And the Orioles had been a sort of charter franchise in the late 70s and 80s. The idea of the Oriole way. You had Earl Weaver. So there was, a, I suppose, a collective societal knowledge and that Cal Ripken had been you know, the shortstop for such a long period of time is that people just understood that, yeah, basically one of the definites of life in America was Cal Ripken Jr. playing shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles. You Then in 96, you had the Yankees winning the World Series for the first time since the late 70s. You had the rise of the core four. You had a situation where the Cubs became good again. The Red Sox became good. And in 2003, there were about, you know, two or three outs away from a World Series, which would have been the Cubs and the Red Sox with the curse of the Billy Goat versus the co- the curse of Babe Ruth. One of those you know, curses would have been broken. You would have had Wrigley, you would have had Fenway, you even had the New York Mets play the Yankees in a Subway Series, first time since the 50s. You had an expansion, you had record crowds in Colorado, sort of three, four million fans. You had 70,000 people going to a baseball game at Mile High Stadium. You you even had the, the you know, Florida Marlins, you know, expansion team, selling out Dolphin Stadium in ninety seven and oh three, winning two you know World Series titles. So there was there were things that very quickly, and you then had the ninety eight home run chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, you know, the St Louis Cardinals, the Chicago Cubs, you know, both trying to get into the postseason, both different personalities, both just superstars. So how would baseball recover from a lost season in 2020? And I think for me the, the concept is the South Park episode. The Simpsons already did it, season 6, episode 7, if you're, if you're curious. Is that all of the the, the standard operating procedures that baseball have done when there's been a crisis wouldn't work now. So let's say you imagine a home run chase. So, you know, sort of annals of 98, the idea of two players on two different teams going for the home run record and whether that would recapture America's love for the game. Well, we already have had had that. We had the explosion of home runs. But the thing is, Whereby in 98 there was a sense of wonder about it. Wow, look at the amount of home runs. Look at the how far they're going. How big these players are. There was almost a, a naivety to it. Whereby now we are far more knowledgeable. We already know that the explosion of home runs is due to the launch angle revolution. You know, a more spherical aerodynamic ball. So that's the work of the um, astrophysicist Meredith Wills has basically proven that it's you know that the seams aren't as pronounced. The ball is actually rounder and it's more aerodynamic. It travels f- further in the air, and you've now got a situation where you know there's been an increase in velocity from pitchers, and just a, a change in 
offensive philosophy from hitters and teams to accept strikeouts. So in other words, it's a more efficient way of playing the game. It's the knowledge that trying to get singles doesn't get you that many runs, whereby, yep, you might have a couple of strikeouts, but if you eventually jack a three-run home run, that is far more valuable than going three for three with three singles. And the point is that the home run record now is Barry Bonds at 73. It's not venerated or respected. And this is due to, you know, steroids. The point is... There was always going to be a tipping point with steroids when someone was going to take it too far. And Barry Bonds was that person. In other words, Barry Bonds, when he was winning three MVPs in his 20s and early 30s, was nowhere near as good as the player of Barry Bonds age 38 to 42. Which is just fundamentally ridiculous. I mean, basically, you, you take a photo, you look at a photo of Barry Bonds at the back end of his career and in his prime, and they are just two different people. He is just absolutely enormous. I mean, he's, his head grew bigger. You know, so we're talking about three or four hat sizes worth of bigger. He, you know, in terms of even the equipment he was using in terms of the... When you see video of Barry Bonds hitting, especially during the season where he hit 73... He looks like a medieval knight. He's got, you know, arm guards, wrist guard, elbow guards. He actually looks as if he's wearing a suit of armour, hitting. You know, he got 232 walks in a season. He just effectively broke baseball because he was so naturally gifted. And then when you're able to get to that size and to be able to be still hitting home runs deep into September, deep into October... Yeah, without there being any stopping. You know, in other words, just people you know, he even got walked while the bases were loaded. They were that terrified. He was that good a hitter. Whereby if you compare it to what Maguire and Souza went through, is that the record was Roger Maris, who chased down Babe Ruth. So it was, you know, in the 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 home run chase in sixty one, there's a fantastic movie, uh, Sixty One Asterisks by uh, Billy Crystal. It's a made-for-TV movie, but it's really good in the sense that... And it captures, you know, Mickey Mantle, America's Hero, and Roger Maris, and their different personalities chasing this record, and how baseball... A lot of fans didn't want them to break Babe Ruth's, you know, record of 61. 16. And so it was almost special that, you know, Mark McGuire did it, and, you know, Roger Maris had spent a couple of years playing in St. Louis and loved it there. It, there was... It was a record that America accepted, and what was happy was broken. Whereby, when Barry did it, by that point, people were starting to get tired. There were question marks about, you know, steroids in baseball, and it just wasn't anywhere near as, as special. And so, really, it's only you know, with um, there was an ESPN Thirty for Thirty documentary that was released earlier this summer called um, "Long Gone Summer." We're only really beginning the process of historical revisionism with regards to Sosa and Mark McGuire. We're starting to accept that there was changes to the ball in the 90s. There was more weight training. There was expansion. And to a smaller extent, there were steroids. And they all played a role in the explosion of home run offense in the late 90s, early 2000s. The point was is that yeah. The, the famous example was when 
Mark Maguire was seen in his locker. He was giving a huge interview to 2030 journalists. And one of the journalists noticed that in his locker there was a bottle of uh, Andro, which is effectively was a steroid. But at the time it was available over the counter without a prescription. Baseball wasn't testing. And that was in part due to, you know, sort of intransigence from the Players Association, not wanting, you know, basically to be able to test their members. And there was a blind eye from a lot of the media. So in other words, a lot of the conventional media criticised this journalist for bringing it up. Because really, and in some ways, I can sort of understand it, is that baseball had gone through the trauma of losing the 94 season. There were still people in 95 and 96, 97 who were angry at the game. There's a whole bunch of people who had basically decided that they had been so hurt by this, they weren't going back. And 98 home run chase was helping to get people back into the sport. You know, baseball needed a feel-good story. And the problem, and Andrew was just something that was going to pop that balloon. And it was really a grey area. I mean, it had only just been banned by the Olympic Committee. But it was available, still, as I've said, available over the counter. And while MLB you know, rules technically outlawed steroids, in the sense that they were illegal to dispute without a prescription, but that wasn't an official don't take steroids, it was merely don't engage in illegal activity. But the point was is that, as anyone knows, steroids are freely available in gyms. You know, there wasn't any testing going on. There wasn't any sense that at, in 1998 that anyone was looking into this with any degree of depth. The owners didn't care, the commissioner didn't care, the media and the players didn't care. And nor did the fan. You know, Maguire and Sosa brought international attention and casual fans back into the league. In some ways that overrides, overrode at the time the need for the truth, whatever that is. You know, the point was Maguire had injury problems in his career. When he was a rookie, he'd hit 50 home runs. You know, there's a, you know, the amount of self-improvement that Sammy Sosa did in his career. He originally started as a very skinny outfielder who could steal some bases and hit with a little bit of power. But he was a free swinger. And when he was traded from the Chicago White Sox to the Chicago Cubs, he underwent an offensive transformation in terms of, you know, working out more, being more professional, learning to take walks, improving his power, until the point where he really came from nowhere in 98. The expectation in 98 was is that it would be Mark McGuire who had light tower power, and then you had the beautiful swinger Ken Griffey, and they were going to reprise the Maris, Mantle, Ruth, Gary kind of home run chase. It wasn't expected to be Sammy Sosa. And both were excellent ambassadors. You know, it's really unfair to single them out solely for a generational and institutional failure. I mean, there's the, the, the statement that Sosa made to Congress, and he did it for an interpreter, despite having, you know, being a particular, fluent in English. But effectively, what he was saying was, is that I didn't do anything illegal in America, because he was basically desperately trying to avoid a, a charge of lying to Congress. So what he was really implying is, is that he didn't do anything illegal in the United States. Whatever he did was happened in the Dominican Republic, which didn't have the same, you know, the laws in the Dominican Republic, I believe at that time, with steroids, was a lot more open-ended. 
you know, uh, I think the writer Jay Jaff puts it best in terms of it was baseball's Wild West era. And it also forgets, we, we kind of forget in our morality police situation to sit there and think, well, actually the players in the 50s and 60s regularly took greenies. They basically were on speed. They were taking amphetamines to get ready for games because of the difficulties of the travel, the, the, the problems of schedule, how many games they were playing. So no one really is innocent. At some point in, in baseball history, there's always been people trying to get an advantage somehow. And the problem that again coming back to the, the, the this idea of the Simpsons already doing it, we've had the situation in baseball where l the curses, all of the famous curses, are now pretty much gone. In two thousand and four, you had the Red Sox coming back from three zero down against the Yankees, and breaking the curse of that Bambino sweeping the St Louis Cardinals. In two thousand and five, you had the curse of the Black Sox was lifted. So, in other words, in two years, you had a situation where an eighty-six year drought and a yeah, basically a ninety-year drought were just gone within two seasons. In two thousand sixteen, the Cubs finally broke the Billy Goat curse. So there's there's really that storyline has been played out. Everyone's seen that in baseball. You've seen all of the reactions are the same. You get the, you know, we finally did it put on graves. You get the, the mass celebration of a city, the cathartic moment of finally getting that victory. Baseball fans and the wider public, they know that now. So the, really the next longest streak is, is Cleveland. But well, remembering the documentary, the 30 for 30 documentary, Believe Land. Well, really the Cavs winning the NBA championship with Akron-born LeBron you know, coming back from, you know, from Miami to take the team to a championship. As a result, that, that's kind of been exercised. So in other words, we now know that the you know, Cleveland have finally won a major championship in a major sport. So I don't think it's going to have the Indians winning the World Series, although it would be magnificent, there would be a lot of celebration, I don't think it's going to have the same national impact. Okay, maybe a hitting streak, someone going after... DiMaggio's 56 hit game streak. Well, the game's not set up for someone to ch to do a 56 game hitting streak. There hasn't really been a 40 game hitting streak for a lot of years. You know, hits are declining, especially singles. And really, your national interest would only kick in around game 40. So really, realistically, you'd only have sort of a period of maybe two, three weeks where this would become a huge thing. And it just doesn't feel likely. It's a bit like it's the same as someone you know, hitting 400. No one's hit 350 in the best part of the last four, five, six, seven years. So expecting someone to, to, to suddenly out of nowhere hit 400 when averages is going down, that doesn't feel... It's not something that baseball can sit there and stake that a claim that they, they think that that's going to happen or something that's likely to happen. It's not outside the realms of possibility but it's fairly unlikely. There isn't really an Ichiro-style hitter who is just absolutely committed to just hitting average, not worried about their slugging percentage or on-base percentage. Okay, so what about expansion? So we know eventually baseball, in terms of setting the schedule postseason, would be a lot easier if they had 32 teams. But the problem that you have is, is that Really, let's say, for example, it was Charlotte and Austin. So in other words, 
yeah, there'd be a third team in Texas and there'd be finally a team in the Carolinas. I don't think that's going to make a massive difference to baseball. It's you know within you'd only be three or four more years before they'd ever play a game. Maybe if you brought back the Expos, that would have something, but that's still Canada and that's still a team that you know a lot of your casual fans are like. Oh, wasn't there always a team in Montreal? I don't think it's going to have a huge change in terms of attendance or in terms of interest. So, so what you have is a situation where, in 94, you had shock and anger about baseball being locked out and the season being cancelled. And I think in 2020, you would have a lot of apathy. There has been a loss of societal knowledge of baseball. In other words, if you'd asked in the 90s who are the 10 most famous baseball players, you would have had people saying Ken Griffey Jr., Derek Jeter, Alex Rodriguez, um, Nomar Garcia. Part of yeah, there was just Manny Ramirez. There was just lots of people that were famous household names. And that isn't the case now. Mike Trout is the consensus best player in baseball. And he is not particularly well known on a national basis. He, you know, you're not getting baseball players being used as the ambassadors for country for companies nationwide. You know, that link, that knowledge that most people had, has now disappeared. Baseball is far more of a regional game that, at times, has moments of national sort of import rather than being a national game in other words people would know who was in the world series people would know who the best player in baseball was and i think and i'm going to use the example of the african-american community and i'm going to compare it with what happened in cricket in in england i think they're very similar situations what you had in cricket in england was is that you've from the 1950s there was a, a huge influx of uh, immigrants from the Caribbean, from the West Indies, coming over because there was effectively there was jobs required and Britain's infrastructure needed to be rebuilt. And it desperately needed people. And so people came from what had been the empire. And a lot of the West, the, a lot of them, a lot of that community settled in London, parts of South London, and not all across the country, but there was some concentrations in London. And as a result, those fans were fantastic. They loved watching England play. They loved watching the West Indies play specifically. And so they would come to the ground, especially the Oval, which is the um, South London cricket ground. In, and there would be a fantastic atmosphere. You'd have drums, you'd have whistles. It would be like a carnival atmosphere. Lots of colour, lots of noise. And as a result, there was, you know, cricket clubs all across the country that you know were Afro-Caribbean. There was a large amount of black players in the county game, and there were black players playing for England. And what happened was is that there was an assumption that because of the powerful and strong history, you know, with the West Indies being one of the world's best cricket teams, and you know, cricket's role as, you know, effectively different cultures, so you know the fight against apartheid South Africa, you had India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Australia, New Zealand, 
all and West Indies all playing on the level playing field. And I think it's similar with baseball. Baseball in the 1980s, you had just a, a whole bunch of just brilliant players. You had Daryl Strawberry, you had Dwight Gooden, you know, Don Baylor. Just you could off the top of your head at any given point name eight or nine superstar African American baseball players. And the sense that, you know, obviously with the history with Jackie Robinson, with the Negro Leagues. And what happened was is that in English cricket they, they banned the drums, the whistles, the noise, and it was kind of a it was such a regressive fuddy duddy thing to do. And it didn't benefit anyone. And so immediately those fans disappeared. Suddenly before you knew it, participation at grassroots cratered. Professionals dwindled. You know, the actual infrastructure that had been built up from you know, the 50s onwards just disappeared. And the same things happened really with baseball. Is that now, you know, it, it's declining. There's far less pickup in high schools. There's far less pickup you know, in the grassroots game. And the thing is, both of those sports have recovered cricket and baseball, but only to an extent. But, you know, they have strong regional bases. They still get people in. In other words, baseball makes, you know, 11 billion in terms of revenue. And cricket was able to get millions of people watching the Cricket World Cup final between England and New Zealand. But they, on a regular basis, they struggle to place its stars and the sport as a whole on the front page as opposed to the back pages. So even now, England, one of England's best bowlers is Joffre Archer, who is was born in Barbados to an English father, has decided to come and play for England. Huge, I think there's large amounts of the black population that just have no idea. You know, they haven't played cricket at school, they haven't gotten to see a cricket game in years, and they're not going to. And so while baseball has, you know, Mookie Betts and Lorenzo Kane to a lesser extent. There really there was a huge gap really between the sort of the Griffey, the Jeter, the Bonds generation. Really the only person that I think sort of maybe bridged that was CeCe Sabathia and that's only one player and you know, okay, he was fantastic when he played when he for the Indians and for the Brewers for a short period of time and maybe the first couple of years for the Yankees, but really the last five, six years of his career has been really just a you know, an innings eating, slightly above average starter who's borderline Hall of Fame. And I don't think that is going to be on the front pages. You know, the problem that both sports have is that no matter how much genius, no matter the genius of Ben Stokes at cricket, the genius of Mike Trout, yeah, doing basically like Mickey Mantle things, is that it's still escaping large you know, swathes of the wider general public. You know, baseball needed opening day this year on July 4th, 2020. You know, the general public needed something positive to celebrate, to reaffirm an element of normality and a link to the past. You know, the role that baseball played in the Second World War, the aftermath of the American Civil War when baseball was first created, and even 9-11, it was the best place sport to do that. You know, think, think to the George Carlin routine, comedy routine, about the differences in language between baseball and football. 
the idea in baseball you're trying to get home in the NFL you know you are trying to get into the end zone you know that that routine is well worth checking out on um, YouTube I can't really give it the credit that George Carlin can or the delivery but the point is, is that there's an intrinsic link between baseball and the creation of Americana and it gives it an ability to heal in a way that basketball, the NFL, and hockey lack. They don't have the same depth of history. They don't come out of the American Civil War. They don't sort of mine the gap between the pastoral, the rural America, and inner city America. And the development, not just of baseball, but the development of America itself. I mean, there was a similar spike in cricket in Great Britain that took place in the post-war years, in the late 40s, early 50s, where this was a battered nation that was just trying to reheal itself, trying to rebuild itself. You know, there was still... There was still rationing. Things were rough. There was a couple of horrible winters. But always what would happen is in the summer, you would take comfort in cricket because it would just take you back to a sort of idyllic... You know, an imagined idyllic past where it was the village green, where before the two world wars, before things became very complicated. And you just have a great batsman, like a Compton would have a fantastic game where you hit 2,000 runs. And just by playing in such a positive way, it would just make people feel happy. You know, it was a diversion. There was also a sense of hope. And baseball having six to eight weeks of the sporting calendar to itself, assuming an outsized role in and its natural place as a cultural institution, displaying the United States at its best, that was a generational chance to bring the wider general public back to the sport. You know, to slowly start repairing the societal knowledge of baseball that would allow its stars to become nationally recognised again. So you'd have people going, wow, Mike Trout really is just an amazing baseball player. He can hit for average. He takes his walks. He can hit tape measure home runs. He plays a great outfield. You know, a great centre field. Got a strong throwing arm. You know, you could, you know, you'd even be almost saying to, you know, the black community, the African-American community, here's Mookie Betts, here's Lorenzo Cain. Now, here are some stars that, you know, young people can look up to. And so, why did this fail? You know, why, why, are, why aren't I talking about the start of the season when instead I'm talking about this, this impasse and the possibility of losing a season rather than getting one? And for me, I, I think it's really two or three interlinked strands. The, the 2016 collective bargaining negotiations were a massive win for the owners. You know, Tony Clark, who's an ex-baseball player, was the head of the Players Association, and he was inexperienced. And what I think what basically happened was is that they were overly focused on comfort lifestyle concessions, i.e. we want more off days, we want more money, you know, per diem money in spring training. In other words, it was... We wanted to make the day-to-day life of being a baseball player better. And so what they didn't do, they didn't go after arbitration, where you have the adversarial nature of the hearing. So in other words, with the arbitration process, effectively, if you go to a hearing, is that you basically say, this is how much I think I should be paid. Let's say it's 
three million dollars. And the team, your team say, actually, we think you're worth uh, $2.85 million. And so you put your case with your agent, say, well, I've done this, this is, I've hit this amount of home runs, this is how good my defense is. And they will say, well, actually, we think your defense was crap. We don't think you walk enough. Uh, you've done a couple of social media posts that have damaged the team. And it's very adversarial. And so eventually, you're... You're, effectively your team is telling you, you we don't think you're good enough to earn what you think you're worth and that is that isn't positive that's not going to engender a long relationship with your team and that's the team that drafted you the team that developed you and what you have was is that you know you had teams increasingly buying out young players at a discount so in other words you've just made it to the big leagues and they're offering you a five six year contract of 30 million dollars which if you're 1920 is an enormous life-changing amount of money however the team are basically locking up how much you're going to make at a fixed price which means that if actually you turn out to produce 70 million pounds worth 70 million dollars worth of value that's that money you don't get that money back but obviously if you go year to year and get injured you basically don't make any of that money it's a real you can understand why these players especially um players from poorer backgrounds from Latin America would take that money because that is money that would then change their families but it's a way that the owners and you know have and front offices have then basically shafted the players out of some money and what you're getting is and I don't think it's collusion in the 1980s sense where everyone all the owners met up and decided as a collective whole to try and take down on free agent spending, and salary as a whole. What it is is that the front offices are now increasingly homogenised. They're full of Ivy League graduates. They're all using advanced analytics, so they're using all kind of algorithms and maths as a way to evaluate players. And I think someone put it best as mckinsey So in other words, it's all about getting the most amount of value, in a very sort of cutthroat manner. So basically everyone is using the same systems and everyone is you know, effectively evaluating player skills in the same manner and therefore evaluating players financially the same, which just means that the middle class of free agent in their late 20s, so they've had three years of you know, cost control where they earn you know, sort of basically anywhere, sort of the league minimum, which at the moment is about $600,000. And so that's for about two, three years. We get kind of modest bumps. So it's almost 600 to 650, so maybe a million. And then you have the three years of arbitration where you might go from sort of two million, four million, six million, depending on whether you get better or injured. Or... So effectively, and this is where now the bulk of your career value is, where it's a set price. But the idea was originally that you'd have your six years when you were young and you weren't very productive. And that eventually, once you were getting into your prime, you'd then be have your six years up, you'd be available for free agency, and that's where you would sign the big contract, and that's where you would make your money. And now these players who are worth one to three you know, wins above replacement, so they're good players, solid players, they are not superstars, but again, they're not league average, they are quality players. Their market's bottomed out. They're getting, they're, their teams are waiting them out over you know, the off-season. So instead of signing these players very competitively in November and December, they're waiting to January and February when you know, spring training's about to start and you don't have a job. 
So instead of getting, you know, four-year contracts for $40 million, you're getting two-year, $10 million contracts, which is, you're basically undervalued. Because you've had a situation, and so that's, the team gets all the, the advantage, you, there's no other option for these players. It's either that or you leave baseball. Because you've had a situation with factoring improvements in technology and training. Younger players are now increasingly you know, productive. So you've got a situation where 19-year-olds are now rocking up into the big leagues from day one and performing fantastically well, which just didn't happen a decade ago. And this is the thing. It's all beneficial to the owners in terms of cost and control. And you've now had a situation where, you know, and this is, I suppose, unintended consequences with the decline of players in their early 30s as a result of increased velocity and decline in the use of steroids to prolong careers artificially. That's where a lot of this anger is coming from. And you can understand why the players are angry and why they feel that they've, you know, the owners keep on taking more and more advantage of them. And so the, the Players Association have hired um, Bruce Meyer to be their lead negotiator. So effectively, to kind of, which chimed in. So in other words, effectively the MLB Players Association is trying to out-owner the owners with an aggressive strategy, and it has. It, it's, this has succeeded in uniting the membership, and they're scaring ownership and the commissioners with threats of agreements. By that, because of this deal, because of the agreement in March when spring training was suspended, effectively, it's the legalese side of it is, is that it's dependent on baseball trying to play the, the maximum amount of games. So if, let's say, the commissioner was to decide to set the schedule at 40 games, the players could say, you haven't negotiated in good faith. You could have played 60 games, you played 40, and effectively you've screwed us out of 20 games worth of salary and if you took that to a grievance and the third party arbitrator agrees with you then the owners and baseball would owe the players hundreds of millions of pounds in the settlement but the the problem is is that you've led to an ugly public fight that has damaged the sport and this opportunity generational opportunity to reinvigorate the sport but all of this is set against a backdrop of a global crisis. Was this the moment to argue over the money? You know, every other sport, you know, cricket, football, basketball, ice hockey. And ice hockey has had problems. Ice hockey has had a, a season, has had many issues. Probably even more issues than baseball in terms of arguments between owners and players. They've had an entire season locked out. Not just part of one, an entire season wiped from the record. Just no games took place. And even they were able to realise that this is just a wider problem. This is a once-in-a-generation nightmare situation. You know, the point is the collective bargaining agreement is up for after the 2021 season. So really, this you, you could have just got on with this season. You would have then had next season. At the end of it, you can then kick off at the league. You can. You can absolutely have a ding-dong battle during the off-season when a lot of casual fans aren't paying attention. They're watching basketball. They're watching American football. They're watching college. You can have that fight. It's not going to hurt anyone or the sport's image. The point is is that 
with the major with the MLB Players Association, it only benefits baseball players in the big league. So you're talking several hundred people. You know, it doesn't. This isn't something. This isn't a deal that's going to help the scouts. It's not helping players in the minor leagues. It's not helping players in college or high school. It is only a benefit to the players. It's not a benefit to the fans or the broadcasters. It is just an issue over salary at this point. I suppose from the way how I look at it is is that if you're going to take sort of Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, then that home run chase in 98 really was part of the reason why I fell in love with baseball. I'd seen baseball in 96 and when I first visited America, and I loved it, but there wasn't really a way in sort of 1990, the late 90s, where you were able to keep up with baseball on a regular basis, living in Great Britain. It just wasn't, you know, there wasn't that many games on, and if they were on, they were on late at night, where obviously as a sort of 10, 11-year-old, you're not going to be allowed to stay up to 3 o'clock in the morning watching you know, the White Sox play Kansas City Royals. And that was always on TV. Literally, the sports report at 8.30 in the morning, and they would have what happened in the football, the cricket, and they would always mention whether Maguire or Sammy Sosa had hit a home run. And it was just amazing. It was a wonderful thing. It was happening in the middle of summer. And while technically, if they did take steroids, they did the wrong thing, it ended up in the right result from Major League Baseball and baseball in general in 1998. And my point is, the MLB Association is doing the right thing. The owners are trying to screw the players. I get that. Is that the right thing if it ends up with the sport in, in in catastrophe? The point is, as I've said, the owners will always look to assume primacy over the players. They'll look to history. Whenever the players have fought back or gained a victory, there has been a backlash from the owners. Eventually. It may take a couple of years, but eventually they will come back and they will try and hammer you twice as hard. And the thing is... The result of this is the game and the fans have suffered as a consequence. The thing is, putting a dollar number on playing the game and holding a loaded gun to the season in the middle of a global pandemic and with massive unemployment is irresponsible. Even if you are right. That the point is, is like any divorce negotiation that involves kids. Yes, you may be in the right, but if you end up having this battle that takes three years and by the end of it your kids hate you, was it worth it? You know, the point is it's supposed to be about playing the game. Once you put a dollar number on it, you're putting baseball fans in a really awkward position. You're saying, I'm not necessarily playing this game for the love of it. I am playing because I get what is owed to me. And the thing is, there's always going to be that cohort of all owners sort of eight to ten who are the hardcore and the players are antagonizing these people and the, these are the people that would drive the sport over a cliff into oblivion as happened in 94 they really would cancel the season it wouldn't bother them that there's going to be 18 months out just so that they could get a victory they really are that you know they are that powerful they are that committed to winning it doesn't matter whether the sport damages. Eventually, their point is, is that I will make that money back eventually, but I'm going to make a point now. You know, the thing is, the circumstances of the season were always going to be unprecedented. And yes, the owners will lose money. You, there's no other way around it. 
if you have empty stadiums with no one paying tickets, no one buying a beer at the concession, no one buying a plastic helmet filled with ice cream, they are going to lose some money. You know, that, that's a given. Now, I fundamentally disagree that baseball is unprofitable. I think any outfit that gets $11 billion worth of revenue is making a profit on some level. You can hide the profits you know, by clever accounting. You can turn a $5 million profit into a $10 million loss if that's you know what suits your bottom line. But really, it's a profitable sport. And the thing is, the owners have collectively profited from the, the, the CBA victory in 2016, and they then needlessly wound the players up you know, by limiting spending on free agency. And, you know, self-serving claims of poverty that are risible. They're just not believable. You know, you've had teams that have, you know, tanked. And the thing is, is that, but that's not a baseball problem solely. You've had, you know, the 76ers in Philadelphia, in the NBA, they had the process. And the thing is, is that tanking in some ways has worked. You've had the success of the Houston Astros. To a lesser extent, the success of the, the Pittsburgh Pirates. It's not something that the owners created of their own volition to screw the players. They've just taken advantage over the, the changes with data that have happened. You know, if you take what the reaction of baseball to Moneyball in the late 90s was, oh, Billy Bean is a bit of a crank and it's all a bit of a joke. But actually, really, the industry as a whole has taken on those those values and then taken them to the, the absolute nth degree which has had good things and negative things. For me personally, I think in terms of pace of play, in terms of the way how the sport is currently run, I, I don't see it as being that positive. I think that the, the game has suffered as a result of too much, you know, too much obsession with, with data and you know, missing the wood for the trees. And the thing is, baseball in 1920 and 95 were primed to come back from the adversity and scandal. MLB right now is not. There are just no quick fixes or feel-good stories that would mask stagnant play, pace of play, where there's just home runs, the ball's not getting in play, it's either a strikeout or a walk. Or the looming battle regarding the new collective bargaining agreement. You know, the owners, if history is any guide, will be spoiling for a fight. And right now, the relations between both of the sides are at an all-time low. So really, is there any belief that there's going to be a consensus or major reforms being agreed from this? You know, broadly speaking, the players have right on their side. You know, the owners have enjoyed record revenues, new TV deals, you know, enlarged franchise valuations. Like, you know, David Glass bought... You know, the Kansas City Royals in the mid-90s for $100 million and just recently sold it for $1.2 billion. And the players as a whole haven't had that money transferred to them as a collective. But, as I've said, was this the right moment to spoil for a fight? Was, was a more nuanced approach in accepting that this season was a one-off? You know, cutting, making a deal with... Major League Baseball for the overall good of the game. Even if you had to sit there and say, we are playing this season under protest. We are doing this for America so that you have games, so that you're trying to build a sense of a coalition 
where you have a nation that has fallen back in love with baseball, that is glad that the players have made this sacrifice, that they've, you know, and thankful for moving the country back towards something close to normality. Would it be better to have a resurgent, popular Major League Baseball with the players being the centre of that, with the owners being the ones who are the bad guys? So you're just basically trying to build a situation where baseball in 2021 is in its strongest place. And so then you could have that fight. You can absolutely smash the owners and you're going to have far more support from people, far more goodwill. You know, the point is, is that you could go into that looking to the future instead of looking over a precipice, which is what they're doing at the moment. The sport as a whole needs to reflect on what baseball truly means. You know, take, for example, take the plans to, to cull a host of minor league teams and leagues. And yeah, the basic premise is, is, is correct. That there are long travel distances in some of these leagues. There are some poor facilities. And in all probabilities, the amount of minor league teams playing and leagues aren't required to produce the requisite amount of major leaguers. So in other words, there is too many teams and really you could cull X number of them and you'd still produce enough major league baseball talent through that pipeline to get into the big leagues so that the big leagues can carry on you know, playing at the standard level. The point is that they're missing the wider point. They're missing the whole picture. You, if you cut these leagues in some of these areas, you, you'd have a situation where large amounts of the country would be hours away from professional baseball. And they'd be you know, fundamentally just disenfranchised. In other words, oh, let's go watch a baseball game. Well, it's in the next state. Actually, no, the next state on from that state. It's a five-hour drive there, five-hour drive back. Oh well, you can watch a game, but the next, the, the you know, the nearest major league team is again two or three states away. So if you don't care for that team, then what are you going to do if you don't get that team on your cable access because you're in the wrong geographical area? In the end, what are you going to do? Are you going to put in all that effort just to support baseball, or are you just going to forego the sport entirely? Are you going to start watching Premier League football, or are you going to? You know, get back into basketball or hockey or just anything. You know, college football or maybe you'll just you'll go and decide to watch just any number of different options which are now available. You're more likely to have people forego the sport than to go that extra mile, and this is it. It's just an obsession with a with efficiency, but it damages the ecosystem of a sport, and this is a sport that has. A rapidly aging, increasingly white demographic. You know, it, I, I, I can't believe I have to keep underlying this. It's a good thing to have more professional baseball players and teams selling the games to all of America and the wider baseball world. Yes, some of these players who don't make it in the minor leagues, yeah, they don't become big leaguers, but they go back to their communities and they coach little leagues. Or they set up a little league, or they coach high school, and they get people to love the game, get more kids into it. Lorenzo Kane is the perfect example. He had no idea about baseball whatsoever. Failed to make, I think it was the basketball team. And so literally he wanted to play, and his mum wouldn't let him play um, 
American football. So he just rocks up at the um, high school tryout for baseball and they gave him a glove and he put it on the wrong hand. And But he ran out and made a, a, just a worldly of a catch in centre field and now has made a, you know, a baseball career where no one expects... This is someone who really just took up the game when they were sort of 16, 17 and has now you know been one of the best centre fielders in baseball. But look at that. If had he not turned up to that high school tryout, we'd have never heard of him. Just because the benefits are not immediately available on a balance sheet doesn't mean they don't exist. Yeah, one of the things that... It's a bit like Jackie Robson Day in the big leagues. And it's a special day to remember his, his sacrifices and his achievements. But for me, and this is not really a criticism, but it's more of an observation, it's... But the, the same old articles are produced year after year. They tell the same stories. Maybe slightly differently, but if you sat there and got me a, a printout of Jackie Robinson articles from 2017, 2018, 2019, and mixed them and you know, sort of jumbled them all up, I wouldn't tell you which year was which. They all just could be the same year. And the thing is, is that Jackie Robinson broke the colour line to give African-Americans the opportunity henceforth and for all time to play in the big leagues. A chance in the big leagues. But the thing is, we can't complain, we can't claim that's success if there's been a massive drop in African-American players in the league and baseball in general. If they're not playing at high school level, if they're not playing little league, if they are not ever picking up a bat, if they never even have the opportunity to pick up a bat, then that's failure. Then that is, in of its way, racism. It's maybe inadvertent racism. Maybe you didn't deliberately mean to. Maybe baseball in nineteen in the late eighties, nineties had no idea that the, the the infrastructure had gone and had disappeared. They just assumed that there would always be a Gary Sheffield. They always assumed that there will be another Ken Griffey coming out of somewhere. And didn't realise that a whole swathe of people, instead of playing baseball, played basketball. They played hockey. They played football. They played soccer. I believe that baseball needs to keep these minor league teams in their community. And that the you know, MLB Players Association needs to use their political capital, not just to help big leaguers, but the sport as a whole. You know, really, the way how I would do it is to have baseball needs its big tryout. It just needs to go all around the United States and even Canada and have tryouts and just find people who are good at baseball. Maybe people who were try, you know, who took up football instead and then didn't get the scholarship they wanted or you know, didn't make it in basketball. But all that have skills that had they picked up baseball when they were a kid would have been great at it. And when you find these talent, and they are there, they, are always, they have always been there. And you go into these underserved communities or you get these people that have you know, just been missed out because you know, the scouting network wasn't there. And this doesn't mean they have to be all African-American or just everyone who's just missed out on a chance at baseball should have some opportunity. Even if they have to you know, go to a field somewhere, just have that opportunity. And then when you find these handful of players, put them in into the minor leagues. You know, rechristen it. Call it the Hope League. And so suddenly you get an option. Maybe it was not going to produce a huge amount of big leaguers, but it's just an opportunity for people to have a chance to make it in baseball. 
or just to fall in love with the sport. And the thing is, the names of these teams need to be the Greys, the Monarch, the Cuban Stars. You know, I'm wearing those uniforms so that these uniforms, instead of being you know, permanently exiled to the history books and the museums. I mean, I love the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City. I would heartily recommend anyone, if you're in that local area, to visit it. It is an amazing thing. But it's, and that museum has done everything it could do. But Major League Baseball needs to do more. So in other words, if you're going to, let's say, Bluefield you know, in West Virginia, all of these places, and to give them a team, and to keep them within the you know, baseball community. And the ability to say, these, giving these kids a dream, a hope of getting to the big leagues. And making these uniforms that mean so much to baseball history alive and real again. And a way that you can sit there and say to, some, you know, to communities that have you know, been seduced by the idea of you know, divisive, hateful rhetoric. Saying that you know, baseball is a symbol that unifies us. You know, the, the uniforms mean something, the names mean something, the players that you are now going to have on your team. Maybe the baseball won't be quite as good as it was when it was single way, but when it's the Hope League, it's an opportunity. It's going to be something that is going to be a positive, that sort of bridges the divide between what people think of the inner cities, what people think of different communities, and allows people to just fall back in love with baseball. I mean, what the Hope League did to my mind would be is that Baseball is truly a sport for the cities, for the rural communities, for the rich, for the poor. And then baseball can truly become a national sport again. Thank you for listening.